Our Father, we pray for the folks this weekend who are involved in loss of life, a very scary situation. Some of them will have issues following this, being able to go back to worship, being able to feel safe in their surroundings. Lord, we pray that you would work to show your love and your Son to be strong and powerful in lives. May may people come to faith in Christ through this tragedy. And Lord, may you bring comfort and may the church be the first ones to lend a hand and to offer help and encouragement, to be the shoulder to cry on or the embrace to give comfort. So we pray, Lord, for the folks in Pittsburgh and for what they're going through today. And we pray your blessing on them and your encouragement for them, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a few years ago when I took a group of students to British Columbia for a missions trip. And we were going through the 18 days there. And on the schedule was the um, Whitewater Rapids. Now, for a guy who can't get into the deep end of a swimming pool, I was a little bit concerned about that. And so we went to do the Whitewater Rapids down the Fraser River in British Columbia, and uh, there was a guide who stood at the front of this thing. And I don't know what you call these things. They're rafts, but they've got two big tubes along the side, and everybody sits facing each other. And there's this rope that goes down, and when you sit on the tube... They say, grab the rope between your legs, don't grab it here, because if you grab it here, your feet can go up over your head and you can go out. And I'm like, what kind of a ride is this? I was concerned. So we had to put all this gear on, and we're going, and we're told that when it starts out, you're going down the river, it's a little bit more like Lazy River for a while, and then you start hitting the rapids, and it gets a little more exciting, so, you know, I'm with students, I'm the youth pastor, right? So I have to be, I have to be brave and strong, and here we go. And in the inside, I'm like, what have I got myself into? I, I do not like this at all, but I don't let anybody know. And we're going down, and we get, we get like a quarter into this ride. And we hit these rapids. And so when you're sitting on the tube, your body is pointing to heaven, right? And we hit this thing, and I was in the front of it, and it basically, it basically went like this. So I was up here. Now my body is pointing this. My head is pointing this way. And I'm hanging on to this thing. And we hit back down. The thing almost tipped over. And I'm thinking, okay, we're 25% of the way into this thing. And we're, we've got that. And it's only going to get more exciting after this. I was really scared. But I don't say anything. And the guide is there. And I look up at the guide. And he looks at me. And he winks at me. And he goes, that was the biggest one I've had in a while. He goes, we weren't supposed to hit that. Well, that was good because the rest of the ride was like, oh, this is nothing after that one. Well, one of the things I realized with this guide, and we would do this in, in future years on a number of occasions, these guys had to answer one, these guides had to answer one question. Not where are we going down the river, not how can we avoid certain rapids, not how big of a rapid can we hit and almost, you know, capsize. They had to answer one question, and that is, how do I keep the people on my raft safe? How do I keep them safe? 
That, is, that was the one question of leadership on the Whitewater Rapids rise. In the passage we're looking at today, Paul is writing to Titus, and he's basically telling him that there's one question that leaders have to answer in a church. One question. And it may seem like arcane or theological at first blush, but it's really the question to ask. And that is, where does a believer's righteousness come from? Where does it come from? Because if a believer is thinking it comes from one place, but it's actually coming from another place, that would be like thinking that you're on the raft and you're safe, but you're really not safe. Nobody told me to put my hands between my legs on the rope. I had my hands out here, and I'm off, I'm off, and I'm in the water. Nobody told me that it wasn't this way that I have a relationship with God. I, I was told it was this way. And as Paul is writing to Titus, coming off of last week, we saw him talking about elders. Now, now we're going to read in verses 10 and following why it was that he was so particular talking about elders needing to be thus and so. So to review, and some of you maybe weren't here last week, um, this, this uh, section between uh, chapter, chapter 1 verses, um, uh, oh, what would it be, 5 through 16 is a new kind of leadership. Paul is writing to Titus saying, there needs to be a new kind of leadership on the island of Crete. And you've got to go and you've got to put it together. So this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to his co-worker Titus, and in Paul's, in, in Paul's instructions, we see a subversive message, elevating the true God and undermining the gods and cultural values of the Cretans, declaring them wholly unacceptable for kingdom living. In his letter to Titus, Paul argues for a new leadership, a new household, and a new humanity. Basically, Christian leaders, church leaders, who will teach the people and those people will come to know Christ, will live kingdom lives, will change their families, and all those families will then change the community. You'll have basically a new community of people. In the last seven verses of chapter 1, Paul names and engages the opponents of the gospel he and Titus preached. Now again, Crete's culture, this is an, this is an island nation in the Mediterranean. It's corrupt. To be a Cretan was to be a liar. There was a verb that used the word create, and it meant to lie. That's how bad they were. Uh, Inside-out ethics, they were immoral. The men were basically treacherous. Uh, they would hire themselves out as mercenaries for other countries. And because they were in the middle of the Mediterranean, a country would launch ships, stop at Crete, pick up extra soldiers, and go on their way. They'd fight, do the battle, they'd come back, drop those people off, and keep going. They had false gods. The primary false god was Zeus. And we'll talk about him maybe in just a minute. Paul asked Titus to serve on Crete. I'm going to have a cough. When I do, I'll just shut my mic off so you don't have to hear it. Um, he asked Titus to serve on Crete in order to restore order to the network of house churches. That's all there was on Crete back then. It wasn't like church buildings. They were, there was a network of home churches. They met in homes throughout the, uh, throughout the island. The short letter to Titus contains the instructions Paul had for him regarding this island ministry. His mission was to set things straight, appoint godly elders, and wrest control of the church from corrupt Cretan leaders. Now, 
Leadership is important. And Paul is writing this first part of his letter to Titus, telling him, and again, Titus, Titus wasn't this like little, nice little guy, you're going on a missions trip. Here, let's go to the island of Crete for 10 days and then come back and tell us, show us all the pictures. No, this place was a nightmare. If you were to go, if you were to be transported from here back to Crete 2,000 years ago, that place was rugged, it was crazy, it was not the Wild West, but the wild, like, Middle East. It was, it was insane there. I mean, you had all kinds, of, all kinds of humanity doing all kinds of whatever on this island. There was very little order except the order that the people themselves wanted to impose on themselves and others. Basically, it was, um, uh, it was a catastrophe in terms of governing or any kind of local order. So, again, let's show the map. Uh, Crete is in the middle of the eastern part of the Mediterranean. It's that little island at the end of the Red Arrow. And you can see it's just south of Greece and just southeast of uh, Italy. And Crete was connected to Greece, okay? So Greece is, uh, uh, they had their, their, their Greco-Roman gods, Mount Olympus is there. Uh, they had all their, their gods. And then Crete was out in the, in the Mediterranean and they believed that the gods actually came from Crete. They were born on Crete, and the worship of the gods first started on the island of Crete. So basically, they were a very uh, uh, Cretocentric um, society. They thought that their place was where it all started. It was a beautiful land. It had rolling uh, areas of produce, and it had snow-capped mountains. It had beautiful uh, uh, vistas of beaches and blue water and sunshine and some, uh, uh, some rocky, mountainous areas that were very difficult to travel through. And again, Zeus was their claim to fame. They claimed that Zeus was born on the island and that he was actually buried on the island and that they were the home of the gods. So looking back at last week, in verses 6 through 9, most of you who have been in church for any amount of time would probably recognize this, this passage where it says an elder must be blameless. This is that um, qualifications of a pastor or qualifications of an elder or qualifications of a bishop or an overseer passage. But the context was Paul writing out these instructions to Titus saying, hey, you got to go to Crete and you got to fix this thing because it's a mess. And there's there's bad leaders, which we're going to get into this morning, but here's what I need you to do. Here are the people that I need you to appoint. And I need you to appoint elders, and they must be blameless, faithful to their wives, men whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since they're an overseer, they're going to manage God's household. They must be blameless and not overbearing or quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. And it's like, Paul, that's like all the guys on the island. Like, where are we supposed to sit? you know, scour the ships that land at port looking for guys like this? The guys that would be like this, they were the ones that were Jesus followers. That's how you'd know. And I, like, in this room, it'd be hard to tell. We all look legit, right? We all look just fine. But on Crete, when you see somebody like that, when you see somebody who's not pursuing dishonest gain, rather, somebody who's hospitable, Somebody who actually loves what is good? Who, who is that? Somebody who's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined? This is going to be a Jesus follower. 
This is somebody whose life really has been changed by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Somebody who would hold firmly to this trustworthy message as it has been taught so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine. And here's, here's the idea right here. And refute those who oppose it. There are people on the island masquerading as Christian leaders and they're teaching the wrong stuff. And we need guys that can refute those who oppose it, who oppose sound doctrine. So the reason elders were needed, the reason they were needed, well, verse 10 shows the kind of leaders that they had. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Those of the circumcision group are the people that believe that righteousness righteousness comes by works. It comes from our behavior. It comes from how well we do. In their case specifically, it comes from adherence to the law, to the dietary restrictions, to the, to the, um, uh, the codes of conduct, to the special days, to circumcision and, and other outward uh, alignments of themselves to the law. Verse 11, these people must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. When he says households, it doesn't mean families as much as it means home ch- house churches. Whole households of believers who come together are being disrupted and corrupted. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. These teachers are doing it, as the King James would say, for the filthy lucre. They want the filthy lucre. They're greedy for it. Verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets has said, and Paul here quotes uh, a statement that would be familiar to the people on Crete. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Now that doesn't sound very like complimentary, right? So they're always liars. Well, that's true. Even the Cretes know it. But for them, that's not a negative. Like, you lie when you have to. Like, for us, if we're doing a job and we're not getting it done, we just, we just speed up, right? We just work faster, especially if we have a deadline. We have to get it done. For them, if they were involved in communication and lying was going to benefit them, well, then you just lie. You just lie to, so it benefits you. That wasn't like a negative. They're always liars, evil brutes. The saying on Crete was, there's not, that many, there's not that many wild animals on the island. But it's okay because the people are like wild animals. They're evil brutes. That's okay. we got enough wild animals without real wild animals. And then lazy gluttons. The irony of lazy gluttons is that they would work hard to do whatever would profit them. They weren't lazy at all, but they were gluttons. And so the lazy is kind of, a, of, of an ironic twist. But he says, this saying is true. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Basically, the people on Crete are just what you thought they were. And he says in verse, uh, that later on in verse 13 there, therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Rebuke them sharply. So you had two groups of people. You had the Judaizers 
which were these people that would come in behind Paul. Paul would go to a place, he would lead people to Christ, he would establish uh, some kind of a church presence, he would set up leaders, and then he would leave. And then these Judaizers would come in behind, and they would say, yes, Jesus plus the law. Yes, Jesus plus circumcision, plus dietary restrictions, plus special festivals, uh, plus obeying all the commands of Moses. And they would come in and they would literally corrupt, they would corrupt the teaching that Paul gave. And then you've got the other group of people here in Crete, they're the Cretans, right? They're the lazy gluttons. They're not willing to work too hard to get to the truth because the truth doesn't matter. And they'll just take what they're taught from by the Judaizers and they're in Crete and they're teaching bad stuff. So you've got kind of two groups of people. And Paul's saying of the second group, rebuke them sharply. Rebuke these Cretan believers who become believers, but they're allowing the, the culture around them to, to lean into how they practice their faith. And, and I've said this over and over, but that, that's our challenge. Our challenge as believers is to not allow the culture to seep in and corrupt our faith corrupt our walk with God, corrupt how we interpret love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying rebuke them sharply so they'll be sound in the faith. And we'll pay no attention to these Judaizers, the Jewish myths or, the merely, or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. The Judaizers reject the truth. And these commands that are being given, he's just saying they're just human commands. That comes from Isaiah 29. When Isaiah says you're your commandments are but rules taught by men. They, they don't get us anywhere. They make us feel good because if we're supposed to go to, um, to, the, to the house church, if we're supposed to go at a certain time and then we're supposed to eat a certain thing and we're supposed to dress a certain way and we're supposed to say certain things and we're supposed to not do other things, if, if I follow all those rules, then I can feel good about myself. So the guide on the raft says, I have to answer the question, how do I keep my people safe? The leader in the body of Christ has to ask the question, do my people know where the righteousness comes from? Is it by keeping all of these rules and regulations? Is that what it is? Or is it by something else? The Judaizers said it was by keeping all the rules and regulations. And on Crete, Paul is saying, Titus, you've got to put better leadership in place because the people are not being taught. He says in verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. Nothing is unclean. If, if Christ has purified you, he talks about this later on in chapter 2. If Christ comes in and cleanses you and makes you pure, everything is pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. So they think that by doing this, they're going to earn favor before God. So they keep doing this, and while it may be a good thing, it's not pure for them because they're doing it for the wrong reasons. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Paul is being very harsh about people who come in and upend the gospel as it was delivered to him by Jesus Christ. Jesus taught him the gospel. Jesus taught him what it meant to receive righteousness from God. And Paul writes about it in all of his letters. He's a broken record. He's a broken record. Every group of people that he writes these letters to that have become 
part of the canon of Scripture, part of Scripture, all these people he's writing the same thing to. It's salvation by faith through grace or by grace through faith, whichever you prefer it, plus nothing else, plus nothing else. And our righteousness comes by God through faith, comes from God through faith. So verse 16, he talks about these leaders and he says, and he ends this, past, this section this way, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. You know, there's something about in our Christian culture that if somebody says the right thing, we think we have to believe them because they say the right thing. But Paul didn't think that. Paul said their actions, by their actions, they deny him. So it really is true. It's not so much what we say, but it's what we do. Right. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Paul is deadly serious. He's being harsh. He's telling Titus, Titus, you've got to get in there and you've got to clean house. These people are hurting people. They're disrupting and corrupting whole households of believers. You've got to get in there and root it out. And I can imagine Titus is like, well, thanks a lot, Paul. I mean, like, why don't you go in there and root it out? I, I don't know why Paul didn't but he decided to send Titus. Well, Paul didn't because Paul can't be everywhere, right? He's got to send, he's got to delegate, and he's got to raise up people who can do it. So a new leadership is needed to guard and steward the ultimate question, where does our righteousness come from? Or, to put it uh, appropriately, uh, grammatically, from where does our righteousness come? Where does it come from? We have sins, and we struggle with sins like anger, And deceit, we deceive. Gossip, stealing, lying, pornography, adultery, theft, drinking too much, hate, can't forgive. Apathy, we just we just don't care. Who cares? Or drugs. We struggle with these things, and we think, because I struggle, I mean, we come in, and we're all like, our shirts are pressed, we look nice, we're fine, we're good, we're great, we're okay, we're anything but, yeah, I'm sinful. Who's, I, I haven't heard anybody say that yet. Hey, how are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm pretty sinful. I, I, I haven't heard that. But we struggle with these things. But we're loath to admit it in mixed company, especially in a place like this. And we feel guilty. And we feel shame. And we don't want to open up. We can't open up. We can't talk about it. It would be embarrassing. And so I know that my sin creates this fog, this haze between me and God. I can't see Him clearly because of my sin. And I know that my relationship to God is based on my behavior. Because that's what I've always heard, that's what I've always been taught, that my sin and my behavior separates me from God. And even when I come to Christ, that it still is hanging like a cloud because I can't be perfect. 
And every time I sin, I feel that, that distance between me and God. Where does our righteousness come from? Should we feel that way? Romans chapter 3, verse 28. And all these writings are different books, different letters of the same guy, Paul. And if I were, Paul's got to be writing. It's like, oh, he's writing the same thing, just different ways to this. Oh, in Corinth, oh, here's the root cause. He's writing that to Corinth. Oh, Galatia. Oh, right to the Galatians. He's just, okay, he's talking to a scribe, right? And he's saying, hey, can you, can you think of a better way for me to say the same thing that I've said to the last four churches? So in Romans chapter 3, he writes all this stuff up to chapter 3, verse 27, and he gets to verse 28, and he says, for we, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Has nothing to do with the works of the law has nothing to do with performance or obedience or anything like that. That a man, a person, a woman, a kid is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He writes in Galatians chapter 2. He says, so we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one's going to be justified. Now what does justified mean? It means to be declared righteous. To be declared righteous. It even means more than that. We're going to see that in just a minute. Pastor John and I were gone this week to Omaha because we both sit on this committee that vets new pastors coming into the Alliance. And we have to make sure that, you know, they're not like us. <laughs> We have to make sure that, they're, that they've got all their, everything's lined up, you know, and they're, because they're coming into the lines, they're joining the ranks, and we want good men and women coming in to be Christian workers in the alliance. Anyway, there was this guy, he's a, a pastor in, in Omaha, and he's just getting ordained, and it was his ordination council, and he's sharp. I mean, this young man, he's just sharp. The kind of a guy you just want to reel him in, get him into the alliance family. He was so sharp that I decided to have a little fun with him because he could take it. I knew he could spar a little bit. But he was talking about righteousness, that, that, that positionally, before God, we're positionally righteous. And I said, I said what, what, does that mean? what does that mean positionally? What is it? I mean, do I have righteousness or don't I have? A, have I been declared right? Am I given righteousness or, or is it? He said, well, Christ gives you his righteousness. I said, so when he gives me his righteousness, is it then my righteousness, or is it still his? Like, do I have it, or is it his on loan to me? And I was giving him a hard time, and the guy started joking with me about giving him a hard time, and somehow we got away from that, and he never answered the question. So we get to the end of his time, and somebody brought it up again, and I said, so I said, just give me 60 seconds, you guys, give me 60 seconds. And I, and I looked at him, and I said, so is it our righteousness or is it or are, are we righteous or just positionally i don't know what positionally means and honestly i don't know what he said but i took him to this verse in second corinthians 5:21 and i said when you're teaching your people about their standing before god how god views them and looks at them this is pretty important it says god made him jesus who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. So I always use that illustration that, you know, Jesus, um, he swaps shirts with us. He, he takes off his white shirt and gives it to us, and he takes our black shirt of sin and he puts it on and he dies on the cross. But he gives us his righteousness. But then it becomes our righteousness. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we become righteous. When God looks at us, he sees, for me, he sees righteous Jeff. He sees righteous Cliff, right? He sees righteous, let's see, whose name do I know? He sees righteous Brock, right? God sees us and we are, we are righteous, right? We have his righteousness. We don't just have like this facade, like in some position we are, but in the reality, in real life, we're not, because we're sinners. But that's the whole point of the good news. That's the whole point of the gospel. Yes, we're sinners, and God clears it away. God forgives us, and he makes us righteous. My friend John Lynch has a ministry called True Face, and they came out in the past year with this video that uh, talks about this. They, they talk a lot about grace and about our standing before God. So take a look at this short video with me. Curtain closes and the crowd cheers, but all you can think about is that note you didn't quite hit or that line you forgot. And you can only imagine what the critics will say and the words the crowd will murmur on their drive home. Or you walk down the hall after the big promotion. Long, hard hours have led to this handshake, but the success doesn't shake the void you feel won't be filled, and you start again to search for that thing your soul is missing. Or when you thought you'd have different news for parents about to be grand, but you must tell your mom that you miscarried again. And starting to feel like maybe you're the light that's lost, and you're beginning to question if it's you who's to blame. And you fought back tears so you could make it to mom's minivan where she gave you the cupcake intending to celebrate, but all you wanted to do was forget the day you didn't make the team or get voted class president or homecoming queen. Was it the campaign you ran, or did they just not like you? Or down the courtroom hall that feels lifetimes away from the aisle where you first said the we do's, but he didn't. And was it you or him that first gave up on this thing? Or was it just the inevitable ending from the beginning that you never saw coming? Or was it on that road that you drive every day, but that day you forget to look? And you regret every second that time stood still and any closer and she might have been killed. And somehow you start to wonder and believe you might be a failure. And these paths you've been walking begin to feel like your identity. And you start to believe that maybe there's something uniquely disqualifying about you. Something unfixable, maybe defective possibly. Broken probably, unlovable surely. Not good enough, definitely. Maybe you just don't deserve this. What if there was a different path? A path that felt like a home you once belonged to. A home where you don't have to hide the, oh, I'd rather not talk about that. A place where you are no longer defined by the, if I could only measure up to's. What if there was a path defined by the eyes of our creator? Seeing with delight the one he created, a father who has no records of your past offenses or graph charts of how often you pray, where there's no secret agenda, no trap door, where you are not defined by self-effort. 
a place where you learn to trust God and trust others and allow them to love you. What if there was a place so safe you could share the worst parts of you and you would be loved more in the telling of it? What if you were welcomed home with the strength of a warm hug as you were picked up and wrapped close and told, this is home, my daughter, my son, come home. So why is it that we have such a hard time receiving the love of God? When the cross eradicates our sin and eradicates the judgment of that sin, most Fridays, maybe two out of three Fridays, my wife and I get to drive to Ankeny to watch our grandson Cash. And usually when I pull in the driveway, uh, Doug is still there and he's got Cash in the front door. And as I pull up and park, I'm waving at Cash out my window, and he sees me, and he says, like, like this, and it, you know, you wait for a, a newborn baby to get to the point, right, where they recognize you, and then when they do recognize you, and they don't just like spit up when they see you, now they actually like want to see you, and so I come up the walk, and he's just, he's just, just shaking, just what, he just can't, because he knows what I'm going to do when I come in the door, and I open the door, and I step in, and immediately the arms go up, and I pick him up, and I pull him tight, and he lays his head down, even ever so briefly, not for real long, but he'll lay his head down, and I'll rub his back, and I'll say, I love you too. I love you too. I'm assuming he's saying that he loves me, right? He doesn't talk yet. I want him to know that I love him, and I want him to hear the words coming out of my mouth, I love you too, long before he can ever verbalize them back to me because I want them ground down into the fabric of his soul that I love him. And I think, about, I think about God who says, I love you. I'll go to the cross for you. All you have to do is believe because trust me, child, you're hopeless. You can't help yourself. You ain't getting out of the mess you're in. If it's not for me, you're lost. So I'm here to help you I love you too. And if Cash does something bad or naughty, I still love him. Just as much as I love my son who was bad and naughty before him. I mean, I still love him. And I always will. Is he going to make me? Of course he's going to make mistakes. Is he going to hurt my? Of course he's going to hurt my feelings at some point in the future. How much more? And I'm just a sinner. I'm just a guy. How much more a holy God who says, I love you and I want you. And why is it that when he's given us his righteousness, we have to believe in who God says we are, that we are righteous, that we are forgiven, that we are holy, that we are blameless, that we are pure, that we are without fault before him. And if I'm without fault before him, Who cares who else I'm before who might find fault with me or you? It doesn't matter because when we stand before God, we're without fault before him. When Paul is writing to Titus, he's saying, 
you got these leaders. They're just corrupting the whole thing. This is supposed to be good news. We're supposed to be able to come to each other. Know that we're, that we're clean before each other. Know that we can't judge each other because the Father who judges has already judged us to be forgiven. That's why we can't judge each other. When we judge one another, we put ourselves in the place of the Father. So our job this week is to live in the light and love of God for us and to share that love with others. But first, to receive it for ourselves. To know that when we fall and skin our knee and we mess up, we get up and we keep going. One more, one more scripture, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Many of you would know this. I have been crucified with Christ, and I, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. That's intimate. That's pure intimacy. When you, we say, Christ lives in us. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And Paul writes, I don't set aside the grace of God because if, by, if, if righteousness could be gained through keeping the law, if my standing before God could be affected one scintilla by my behavior or my obedience then Christ died for nothing. Christ's death was in vain because his death, his death is what paid for my sins. His death is what gives me a relationship with God, not my performance, not my behavior, my faith in the one who performed and behaved for me. And Paul is saying, Titus, get in there and clean this thing up. Fix this up. Find elders who can who can both teach sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Find men who can go in and who could lead this thing and not give all this false teaching about where we get our righteousness from. Because that's messing up with the active ingredient. And that active ingredient is the cross of Christ and the grace that comes to us from it. When you mess up with that, you've messed up with the gospel. And Paul gets angry. So, You're free from sin. Your faith in Christ has saturated you with his righteousness. It's not that just like we're positionally righteous. No, we become the righteousness of God in him. It is is through the fabric of our soul, that righteousness that God gives us. It's not just this, this positional thing that's only off there somewhere. We have it right now before God. It's real. So live in the light of who God says you are. Forgiven, chosen, loved. we got to live into that. We all, oh no, we're too guilty. You don't know me. You don't know my problems. Yeah, says every person in the room. Doesn't matter. That's what the cross is about. That's what the cross is for. Because if the cross is, is said to not be able to clean up your sin or my sin, then Christ died in vain. And he did not die in vain. So as we take this bread and juice this morning, this is where we get our righteousness from. From the body and blood of the sacrificed Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So when you come up here in just a minute or two and you rip that bread off, that's the body, the real body of the real man, Jesus, who was also divine, 
who went to the cross to pay for real sins, our sins. And the juice that we dip it in represents the blood of Jesus, the final sacrifice sufficient for the whole world's sins from start to finish. And he says, for as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this is a reminder for us. It's a reminder. And when you dip that bread in, you hear God saying to you, I love you too. Before you were ever able to verbalize it, I loved you. Before you ever knew my name, I loved you. The good news is we get to live in that love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you save us through faith. You save us by your grace. You save us in our sin. And we work out our salvation, yes, with fear and trembling, but also, God, also by faith. The life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God. Lord, there's people this morning who are struggling with sin in their lives. It's that same old sin that comes knocking. And it's got them beaten down. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would so overwhelm them with your love and forgiveness that they would focus more on you and your love for them than on their failure and their sin. And Lord, I believe when they do that, and when I do that, our sins become less and less and farther and farther away as we draw closer and closer to you. So Lord Jesus, I pray that you would, through this time of communion, bring us healing and bring us closer to your heart and to hear you say that you love us too. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.